This is chapter 27, Active Galaxies, Quasars, and Supermassive Black Holes. And there are three sections to this chapter. 27.1, Quasars. 27.2, Supermassive Black Holes, What Quasars Really Are. And 27.3, Quasars as Probes of Evolution in the Universe. The opening figure for this chapter shows two images side by side, and the one on the right is absolutely famous and worth looking at if you have the text in front of you. If you don't, I recommend googling Hubble Ultra Deep Field, which may bring the image up pretty quickly. I'll read the caption. It says, The deepest picture of the sky in visible light at left shows huge numbers of galaxies in a tiny patch of sky, only one one hundredth the area of the full moon. In contrast, the deepest picture of the sky taken in x-rays at right shows large numbers of point-like quasars, which astronomers have shown are supermassive black holes at the very centers of galaxies. The opening paragraphs of the chapter read, During the first half of the 20th century, astronomers viewed the universe of galaxies as a mostly peaceful place. They assumed the galaxies formed billions of years ago, and then evolved slowly as the populations of stars within them formed, aged, and died. That placid picture completely changed in the second half of the 20th century. Today, astronomers can see that the universe is often shaped by violent events, including cataclysmic explosions of supernovae, collisions of whole galaxies, and the tremendous outpouring of energy as matter interacts in the environment surrounding very massive black holes. The key event that began to change our view of the universe was the discovery of a new class of objects. Quasars. This is section 27.1 on quasars, and by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. One, describe how quasars were discovered. Two, explain how astronomers determine that quasars are at the distances implied by their redshifts. And three, justify the statement that the enormous amount of energy produced by quasars is generated in a very small volume of space. You're going to like this. The name quasars started out as short for quasi-stellar radio sources. <laughs> Here, quasi-stellar means sort of like stars. The discovery of radio sources that appeared point-like, just like stars, came with the use of surplus World War II radar equipment in the 1950s. Although few astronomers would have predicted it, the sky turned out to be full of strong sources of radio waves. As they improved the images that their new radio telescopes would make, scientists discovered that some radio sources were in the same location as faint blue stars. No known type of star in our galaxy emits such powerful radio radiation. What then were these quasi-stellar radio sources? You know that most of astronomy is based on the radiation that we receive from space. So, like good astronomers, we look at the spectra of the radiation that we receive. So let's turn our attention to redshifts. The answer came when astronomers obtained visible light spectra of those two faint quote-unquote blue stars that were strong sources of radio waves. Spectra of these radio stars only deepened the mystery. They had emission lines, but astronomers at first could not identify them with any known substance. By the 1960s, astronomers had a century of experience in identifying elements and compounds in the spectra of stars. Elaborate tables had been published showing the lines that each element would produce under a wide range of conditions. A quote-unquote star with unidentifiable lines in the ordinary visible light spectrum had to be something completely new. In 1963, 
at Caltech's Palomar Observatory, Martin Schmidt was puzzling over the spectrum of one of the radio stars, which was named 3C273, because it was the 273rd entry in the third Cambridge catalog of radio sources. There were strong emission lines in the spectrum, and Schmidt recognized that they had some spacing between them that were like the Balmer lines of hydrogen. But the lines in 3C273 were shifted far to the red of the wavelengths at which the Balmer lines were normally associated. Indeed, these lines were at such long wavelengths that if the red shifts were attributed to the Doppler effect, 3C273 was receding from us at the speed of 45,000 kilometers per second, or about 15% the speed of light. Since stars don't show Doppler shifts this large, no one had thought of considering high red shifts to be the cause of strange spectra. The puzzling emission lines and other star-like radio sources were then re-examined to see if they, too, might be well-known lines with large red shifts, and this proved to be the case. But the other objects were found to be receding from us at even greater speeds. Their astounding speeds showed that the radio quote-unquote stars could not possibly be stars in our own galaxy. Any true star moving at more than a few hundred kilometers per second would be able to overcome the gravitational pull of the galaxy and completely escape from it. And as we'll see later in this chapter, astronomers eventually discovered there was also more to these quote-unquote stars than just a point of light. It turns out that these high-velocity objects only look like stars because they are compact and very far away. <laughs> they look like points of light. Later, astronomers discovered objects with large redshifts that appear star-like but have no radio emission. Observations also showed that quasars were bright in the infrared and X-ray bands too, and not all of these X-ray or infrared bright quasars could be seen in either the radio or visible light bands of the spectrum. Today, all of these objects are referred to as quasi-stellar objects, QSOs, or as they're more popularly known, quasars. We have reached a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It says, read an interview with Martin Schmidt on the 50th anniversary of his insight about the spectrum of quasars and their redshifts. At this point, we've discovered over a million quasars, and we've analyzed the spectra of over 100,000. None of the spectra show blue shifts. They all show red shifts, and the red shifts can be really large. <laughs> we know they're not stars, yet whenever we look at a photo of them, they still look to us like points of light. They appear to us as stars. So maybe the description quasi-stellar isn't so bad after all. Earlier, I referred to something called the Balmer series, and this next paragraph is going to talk about the Lyman series. <laughs> Both have to do with hydrogen. When we look at hydrogen's spectra, we usually see transitions of electrons. That's what shows up in the spectra. And these low-energy transitions are always happening, and they're usually occurring in the visible part of the spectrum. So when we see lines in the visible part at specific locations, we can say, hey, that's hydrogen. When hydrogen is red-shifted, those lines are shifted more towards the red, and in the extreme, they can appear in infrared regions of the spectrum. This next paragraph refers to the Lyman series, and that just refers to higher energy transitions of electrons in hydrogen, and so we normally see it in the electromagnetic spectrum in the higher energy regions, in ultraviolet. And when the Lyman series is also red-shifted, it's shifted more towards red, so we can see it in visible and infrared regions. 
The paragraph reads, in the record-holding quasars, the first Lyman series line of hydrogen, which is normally in ultraviolet, is shifted all the way through visible to infrared. So we know it's moving really fast. And to determine the speed, we can't just apply the Doppler effect formula as written. We have to take into account that it's moving close to the speed of light. So we have to use a relativistic form of the Doppler effect. And when we do so, we find that these quasars with that big of a shift in their Lyman series are moving about 96% of the speed of light. I didn't read the last paragraph word for word, but what I'd like you to remember is that these quasars are all moving away from us, and some of them are moving phenomenally fast. Remember Hubble's law? It tells us if we can figure out how quickly a galaxy is moving away from us, we can tell how far away it is. And so the first questions astronomers asked was whether quasars also obey Hubble's law and were really at the large distances implied by their redshifts. Since ordinary galaxies obey Hubble's law, one way that we could determine whether quasars do too is to see if they're located inside of galaxies. And alas, ground-based telescope observations hinted that quasars were indeed within galaxies and that they were located at the centers of galaxies. <laughs> you and I know what are often located at the centers of galaxies. But before we get to that, it's important to note that the ground-based observations were only hints because turbulence in our atmosphere can blur what we see, especially for points of light far away. The Hubble Space Telescope, which is over 300 miles above the surface of the Earth, isn't affected by atmospheric turbulence and can detect the faint glow from some of the galaxies that host quasars. It was the Hubble Space Telescope that gave us the strongest evidence that quasars are located at the centers of galaxies. And quasars have been found in the cores of both spiral and elliptical galaxies, and each quasar has the same redshift as its host galaxy. A wide range of studies with the Hubble Space Telescope clearly demonstrate that quasars are indeed really far away, and therefore they must be producing a truly impressive amount of energy to be detectable as points of light that are much brighter than their host galaxy. Interestingly, many quasar host galaxies are found to be involved in a collision with a second galaxy, providing, as we'll see, an important clue to the source of their prodigious energy output. So, how big is their energy source? Given their large distances, quasars have to be extremely luminous to be visible to us all, far brighter than any normal galaxy. In visible light alone, most are far more energetic than the brightest elliptical galaxies. But as we saw, quasars also emit energy in the X-ray and ultraviolet wavelengths, and some are radio sources as well. When all their radiation is added together, some of these quasi-stellar objects have total luminosities as large as 100 trillion suns, which is 10 to 100 times the brightness of luminous elliptical galaxies. Finding a mechanism to produce the large amount of energy emitted by a quasar would be difficult under any circumstances, but there is an additional problem. When astronomers began monitoring quasars carefully, they found that some vary in luminosity on timescales of months, weeks, or in some cases, days. This variation is irregular and can change the brightness of a quasar by a few tens of percent in both its visible and radio output. Now think about what such a change in luminosity could mean. A quasar, at its dimmest, is still more brilliant than any normal galaxy. <laughs> now imagine that the brightness increases by 30% in just a few weeks. Whatever mechanism is responsible must be able to release new energy at rates that stagger our imaginations, especially for cosmic timescales. The most dramatic changes in quasar brightness are equivalent to the energy released by about, get this, 100,000 billion suns. 
To produce this much energy, we would have to convert the total mass of about 10 Earths into energy every minute. And because the fluctuations occur in such short times, the part of the quasar that's varying in brightness must be really small. Let's use a cluster of stars as an example to understand why this is true. Imagine that this cluster is 10 light years in diameter and located a very far distance from Earth. Suppose that for whatever reason, every star in this cluster brightens and remains bright. When the light from this brightening arrives to Earth, we would first see the brighter light from the stars on the near side. Five years later, we would see the increased light from the stars at the center, and 10 years would have passed before we detect more light from the stars on the far side. Even though all stars in the cluster brightened at the same time, the fact that the cluster is 10 light years wide means that 10 years must elapse before the increased light from every part of the cluster reaches us. From Earth, we would see the cluster get brighter and brighter as light from more and more of the stars begins to reach us. Not until 10 years after the brightening began would we see the cluster reach its maximum brightness. In other words, if an extended object suddenly flares up, it will seem to brighten over a period of time equal to the time it takes the light to travel across the object from its far side. Isn't that amazing? We can apply this idea to brightness changes in quasars to estimate their diameters. Because quasars typically vary, that is, get brighter and dimmer over a period of a few months, the region where the energy is generated can't be larger than a few light months across. If it were larger, it would take longer than a few months for the light from the far side to reach us. So, how large is a region of a few light months? Pluto, which is usually the outermost dwarf planet in our solar system, is about 5.5 light hours away from us, and the nearest star is 4 light years away. Clearly, a region a few light months across is tiny relative to the size of our galaxy, and some quasars vary even more rapidly, which means their energy is generated in an even smaller region. Whatever mechanism powers the quasars, So how large is a region of a few light months? Well, Pluto, usually the outermost dwarf planet in our solar system, is about 5.5 light hours away from us, while the nearest star is four light years away. Clearly, a region a few light months across is tiny relative to the size of the entire galaxy. And some quasars vary even more rapidly, which means their energy is generated in an even smaller region. Whatever mechanism powers the quasars must be able to generate more energy than that produced by the entire galaxy in a volume of space that, in some cases, is not much larger than our solar system. Let's consider what some earlier evidence was trying to tell us. Even before the discovery of quasars, there had been hints that something very strange was going on in the centers of at least some galaxies. Back in 1918, American astronomer Herbert Curtis used the Large Lick Observatory Telescope to photograph a particular galaxy, the galaxy Messier 87, which is located in the constellation of Virgo. On that photograph, he saw what we now call a jet coming from the center, or nucleus of the galaxy. Can you imagine what you would have thought? This jet literally and figuratively pointed to some very strange activity going on in that galaxy nucleus. But he had no idea what it was, and no one else knew what to do with this space oddity either. So astronomers just lived with this random fact that there was a galaxy shooting jets out of its center until Carl Seifert, who is a young astronomer working at Mount Wilson Observatory in California, found half a dozen galaxies with extremely bright nuclei that were almost stellar, rather than fuzzy in appearance like most galaxy nuclei. 
Using spectroscopy, he found that these nuclei contain gas moving up to 2% the speed of light. That might not sound like very much, but it's 6 million miles per hour <laughs> and more than 10 times faster than the typical motions of stars in galaxies. After decades of study, astronomers identified many other strange objects beyond our Milky Way galaxy. They populate a whole zoo of what are now called active galaxies, or active galactic nuclei. That's abbreviated AGN. Astronomers first called them by many different names, depending on what sorts of observations led to the discovery of each category. But we are now so seasoned and wise that we know that we're always looking at the same basic mechanism. What all these galaxies have in common is some activity in their nuclei that produces an enormous amount of energy in a very small volume of space. In the next section, we describe a model that explains all these galaxies with strong central activity, both the AGNs, active galactic nuclei, and the QSOs, quasi-stellar objects. The section ends with a link to Learning Box, and I encourage you to visit the link. It says, to see a jet for yourself, check out a time-lapse video of the jet ejected from NGC 3862. This is section 27.2, supermassive black holes, what quasars really are. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do three things. One, describe the characteristics that are common to all quasars. Two, justify the claim that supermassive black holes are the source of energy emitted by quasars as well as active galactic nuclei. And three, explain how a quasar's energy is produced. In order to find a common model for quasars and their cousins, the active galactic nuclei, let's first list the common characteristics we've been describing and add some new ones. First, quasars are hugely powerful, emitting more power in radiated light than all the stars in our galaxy combined. Second, quasars are tiny, about the size of our solar system, and to astronomers, that's really small. Three, some quasars are observed to be shooting out pairs of straight jets at close to the speed of light in a tight beam to distances far beyond the galaxies they live in. These jets are themselves powerful sources of radio and gamma ray radiation. Fourth, because quasars put out so much power from such a small region, they can't be powered by nuclear fusion the way stars are. They must use some process that is far more efficient. And fifth, as we shall see later in this chapter, quasars were much more common when the universe was young than they are today. That means they must have been able to form in the first billion years or so after the universe began to expand. You might not have guessed this, but you are in a much better position than the astronomers who discovered quasars in the 1960s to guess what powers the quasars. And that's because the key idea in solving the puzzle came from observations of black holes. The discovery of the first stellar mass black hole in the binary system, Cygnus X1, was announced in 1971, several years after the discovery of quasars. Proof that there is a black hole at the center of our own galaxy came even later. Back when astronomers first began trying to figure out what powered quasars, black holes were simply one of the more exotic predictions of the general theory of relativity that still waited to be connected to the real world. It was only as proof of the existence of black holes accumulated over several decades that it became clear that only supermassive black holes could account for all the observed properties of quasars and the active galactic nuclei. One of the things that you know that we certainly didn't know then is that our own galaxy has a black hole in its center and the energy is emitted from a small central region. 
While our black hole doesn't have the mass or energy of the quasar black holes, the mechanism that powers them is similar. The evidence now shows that most and probably all elliptical galaxies and all spirals with nuclear bulges have black holes at their centers. The amount of energy emitted by material near the black hole depends on two things. One, the mass of the black hole, and two, the amount of matter that is falling into it. Here's a crazy fact. If a black hole with a billion suns worth of mass inside accretes even a relatively modest amount of additional material, say about 10 solar masses per year, then it can, in the process, produce as much energy as a thousand normal galaxies. This is enough to account for the total energy of a quasar. If the mass of the black hole is smaller than a billion masses or the accretion rate is lower, then the amount of energy emitted can be much smaller, as it is in the case of the Milky Way. We've reached a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It says, watch a video of an artist's impression of matter accreting around a supermassive black hole. How do we show that a black hole is present at the center of a galaxy? Well, we demonstrate that so much mass is crammed into so small a volume that no normal objects, no massive stars, and no clusters of stars could possibly account for it. We also know that black holes are generally surrounded by hot accretion disks with gas and dust that swirl around the black hole before falling in. If we assume that the energy emitted by quasars is also produced by a hot accretion disk, then as we saw in the previous section, the size of the disk must be given by the time the quasar energy takes to vary. For quasars, the emission in visible light varies on typical timescales of 5 to 2,000 days, limiting the size of the disk to that many light days. In the X-ray band, quasars vary even more rapidly, so the light travel time argument tells us that this more energetic radiation is generated in an even smaller region. Therefore, the mass around which the accretion disk is swirling must be confined to a space that is even smaller. If the quasar mechanism involves a great deal of mass, then the only astronomical object that can confine a lot of mass into a very small space is a black hole. In a few cases, it turns out that the X-rays are emitted from a region just a few times the size of the black hole event horizon. The next challenge, then, is to weigh this central mass in a quasar. In the case of our own galaxy, we used observations of the orbits of stars very close to the galactic center, along with Kepler's third law to estimate the mass of the central black hole. In the case of distant galaxies, we can't measure the orbits of individual stars because we can't see them, but we can measure the orbital speed of the gas in the rotating accretion disk. The Hubble Space Telescope is especially well-suited to this task because it is above the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere and can obtain spectra very close to the bright central regions of active galaxies. Isn't that amazing? The Doppler effect is then used to measure radial velocities of the orbiting material and so derive the speed with which it moves around. One of the first galaxies to be studied with the Hubble Space Telescope is our old favorite, the giant elliptical M87. Hubble Space Telescope images showed us that there is a disk of hot gas swirling around the center of M87. It's about 10,000 degrees Kelvin. It was surprising to find hot gas in an elliptical galaxy because this type of galaxy is usually devoid of gas and dust. But the discovery was extremely useful for pinning down the existence of the black hole. 
Astronomers measured the Doppler shift of spectral lines emitted by this gas, found its speed of rotation, and then used the speed to derive the amount of mass inside the disk by applying Kepler's third law. Modern estimates show that there is a mass of at least 3.5 billion times the mass of our Sun concentrated in a tiny region at the very center of M87. From our current understanding of the nature of things, so much mass concentrated in such a small volume of space must be a black hole. Another example is shown in figure 27.9. Here we see a disk of dust and gas that surrounds a 300 million stellar mass black hole in the center of an elliptical galaxy. <laughs> the bright spot in the center is produced by the combined light of stars that have been pulled close together by the gravitational force of the black hole. The mass of the black hole is again derived from measurements of the rotational speed in the disk, and the gas in the disk is moving around at 155 kilometers per second at a distance of only 186 light years from the center. Given the pool of mass at the center, we expect that the whole dust disk should be swallowed by the black hole in several billion years. <laughs> oh my god. Being the intelligent, critical thinkers that you are, you'll want to ask a question. But do we have to accept black holes as the only explanation of what lies in the center of these galaxies? What else could we put in such a small space other than a giant black hole? The alternative that we know of is stars, but to explain the masses in the center of galaxies without a black hole, we need to put at least a million stars in a region the size of our solar system. <laughs> to fit, they would have to be only two star diameters apart. Collisions between the stars would happen all the time, and these collisions would lead to mergers of stars, and very soon, <laughs> the one giant star that they would form would collapse into <laughs> a black hole. So there really is no escape. Only a black hole can fit so much mass in such a small space. You might remember that observations now show that all galaxies with a spherical concentration of stars, either elliptical galaxies or spiral galaxies with nuclear bulges, harbor one of these giant black holes at their centers. Among them is our neighbor spiral galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. The masses of these central black holes range from just under a million to up to at least 30 billion times the mass of the Sun. Several black holes may be even more massive, but the mass estimates have large uncertainties that need further verification. We call these giant black holes supermassive to distinguish them from the much smaller black holes that form when some stars die. So far, the most massive black holes from stars that we've detected have masses of only about 40 times the mass of our sun, much less than the million or billions of solar masses that make up supermassive black holes. If you remember, we began this chapter talking about quasars, and we described them as being really far away, emitting exceptionally large amounts of energy, and looking like a star in a telescope. And now we're saying that quasars are associated with supermassive black holes. Most people would say, wait a minute, black holes don't look like stars, and they don't release a lot of energy. Certainly not the extreme amounts of energy that we've been talking about. So how do we address this conundrum? Let's go back to what we think we know about black holes. What we think we know is that a black hole itself can't radiate energy, at least not inside the event horizon, and we're not even sure that's true. Stephen Hawking said that a black hole actually does release a little bit of radiation, which is called quantum radiation, but we're ignoring that for this text because it's probably not a lot. Any energy we detect 
must come from the material very close to the black hole, but not inside its event horizon. If you remember, when we first started talking about black holes, we identified a couple of places where energy was being released. One place was in the accretion disk around the black hole, and another place was above or below the black hole, potentially from the reorientation of magnetic field lines. Black holes and galaxies work in a similar fashion. If you remember, black holes exert a really strong gravitational force, but to feel it, you've got to be relatively close to the black hole. In a galaxy, a central black hole will attract matter that's nearby, and this matter could be stars, dust, and gas. The matter spirals in toward the spinning black hole and forms an accretion disk of material around it. As the material spirals ever closer to the black hole, it accelerates and becomes compressed, heating up to temperatures of millions of degrees. This matter can radiate prodigious amounts of energy as it falls in toward the black hole. To convince yourself that falling into a region with strong gravity can release a great deal of energy, imagine dropping a printed version of this textbook out the window of the ground floor of the library. It's going to land with a thud, and maybe it'll surprise a pigeon, but the energy released by its fall will not be very great. Now, take the same book up to the 15th floor of a tall building and drop it from there. For anyone below, astronomy could suddenly become a deadly subject. <laughs> when the book hits, it does so with a great deal of energy. Dropping things from far away into the much stronger gravity of a black hole is much more effective in turning the energy released by infall into other forms of energy. Just as the falling book can heat up the air, shake the ground, or produce sound energy that can be heard some distance away, so the energy of material falling in toward a black hole can be converted to a significant amount of electromagnetic radiation. We don't think that there are a lot of textbooks falling into black holes, but we do know that there are streams of infalling gas. If a dense blob of gas moves through a thin gas at high speeds, it heats up as it slows by friction, and as it slows down, the kinetic energy is turned into heat energy. Just like a spaceship re-entering the atmosphere, gas approaching a black hole heats up and glows where it meets the other gas. But this gas, as it approaches the event horizon, reaches speeds of up to 10% the speed of light and more. It therefore gets far, far hotter than a spaceship, which reaches no more than about 1500 Kelvin. Indeed, gas near a supermassive black hole reaches a temperature of about 150,000 Kelvin, about 100 times hotter than a spaceship returning to Earth. It can even get so hot, millions of degrees, that it radiates X-rays. The amount of energy that can be liberated this way is enormous. If you remember, stars and hydrogen bombs involve nuclear fusion, where hydrogen is converted into helium. But about 1% of the original mass of the hydrogen is not converted. It's transformed into energy. Quasars are much more efficient. Energy in quasars is not released by nuclear fusion, but rather by material falling to the event horizon of the black hole. The energy released in this process is easily 10 to 32 times the amount of energy that's released by a similar amount of mass involved in nuclear fusion. This increase in energy efficiency explains how a tiny volume like the region around a black hole can release as much energy in a second as a whole galaxy. <laughs> but to radiate all of that energy, the hot gas must take its sweet time as it swirls around the black hole in the accretion disk. Most black holes don't show any signs of quasar emission. We call them quiescent. But, like sleeping dragons, they can be woken up by being roused with a fresh supply of gas. Our own Milky Way black hole is currently quiescent, but it may have been a quasar just a few million years ago.
<laughs> what, you ask? <laughs> why would we think that? Well, we're just trying to understand why. There are two giant gamma-ray emitting bubbles that extend 25,000 light years above and below our galactic center. <laughs> Perhaps Sagittarius A star was really a quasar at one point. Figure 2711 in the book is worth taking a look at. It's titled Fermi Bubbles in the Galaxy, and the caption reads, Giant bubbles shining in gamma-ray light lie above and below the center of the Milky Way galaxy, as seen by the Fermi satellite. The gamma-ray and X-ray image is superimposed on a visible light image of the inner parts of our galaxy. The bubbles may be evidence that the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy was a quasar a few million years ago. Back to the reading. The physics required to account for the exact way in which the energy of infalling material is converted to radiation near a black hole is far more complicated than our simple discussion suggests. To understand what happens in the rough-and-tumble region around a massive black hole, astronomers and physicists must resort to computer simulations, and they require supercomputers, fast machines capable of an awesome number of calculations per second. The details of these models are beyond the scope of our book, but they support the basic description presented here. So what about the radio jets, you ask? So far, our model seems to explain the central energy source in quasars and active galaxies. But as we've seen, there's more to quasars and other active galaxies than the point-like energy source. They can also have long jets that glow with radio waves, light, and sometimes even x-rays, and that extend far beyond the limits of the parent galaxy. Can we find a way for our black hole and its accretion disk to produce these jets of energetic particles as well? Many different observations have now traced these jets to within 3 to 30 light-years of the parent quasar or galactic nucleus. While the black hole and accretion disk are typically smaller than one light-year, we nevertheless presume that if the jets come this close, they probably originate in the vicinity of the black hole. Another characteristic of the jets we need to explain is why they contain matter moving close to the speed of light. Our question is really, why are energetic electrons and other particles near a supermassive black hole ejected into jets and often into two oppositely directed jets rather than in all directions? Again, we must use theoretical models and supercomputer simulations of what happens when a lot of material whirls inward in a crowded black hole accretion disk. Although there's no agreement on exactly how jets form, it's become clear that any material escaping from the neighborhood of a black hole has an easier time doing so perpendicular to the disk. The authors of the text write, in some ways, the inner regions of black hole accretion disks resemble a baby that's just learning to eat by themselves. As much food as goes into the baby's mouth can sometimes wind up being spit out in various directions. In the same way, some of the material whirling inward toward a black hole finds itself under tremendous pressure and orbiting with tremendous speed. Under such conditions, simulations show that a significant amount of material can be flung outward, not back along the disk where more material is crowded in, but above and below the disk. If the disk is thick, as it tends to be when a lot of material falls in quickly, it can channel the outrushing material into narrow beams perpendicular to the disk. Figure 2713 shows observations of an elliptical galaxy that behaves exactly in this way. At the center of this active galaxy, there's a ring of dust and gas about 400 light-years in diameter, surrounding a 1.2 billion solar mass hole. 
Radio observations show that two jets emerge in directions perpendicular to the ring, just as the model predicts. With this black hole model, we come a long way toward understanding the quasars and active galaxies that seemed very mysterious only a few decades ago. As often happens in astronomy, a combination of better instruments, making better observations, and improved theoretical models enabled us to make significant <laughs> progress on a puzzling aspect of the cosmos. This section ends with a Making Connections box titled Quasars and the Attitudes of Astronomers. It reads, The discovery of quasars in the early 1960s was the first in a series of surprises astronomers had in store. Within another decade, they would find neutron stars in the form of pulsars, the first hints of black holes in binary X-ray sources, and even the radio echo of the Big Bang itself. Many more new discoveries lay ahead. As Martin Schmidt reminisced in 1988, this had, I believe, a profound impact on the conduct of those practicing astronomy. Before the 1960s, there was much authoritarianism in the field. New ideas expressed at meetings would be instantly judged by senior astronomers and rejected if too far out. We saw a good example of this in the trouble Chandrasekhar had in finding acceptance for his ideas about the death of stars with cores greater than 1.4 times the mass of the sun. The discoveries of the 1960s, Schmidt continued, were an embarrassment in the sense that they were totally unexpected and could not be evaluated immediately. In reaction to these developments, an attitude has evolved where even outlandish ideas in astronomy are taken seriously. Given our lack of solid knowledge in the extragalactic area of astronomy, this is probably to be preferred over authoritarianism. That's not to say that astronomers, being human, don't continue to have prejudices and preferences. For example, a small group of astronomers who thought that the redshifts of quasars were not connected to their distances, which was definitely a minority opinion, often felt excluded at meetings or from access to telescopes in the 1960s and 1970s. It's not so clear that they actually were excluded, as much as they felt the very difficult pressure of knowing that most of their colleagues strongly disagreed with them. As it turns out, the evidence, which must ultimately decide all scientific questions, was not on their side either. But today, as better instruments bring solutions to some problems and starkly illuminate our ignorance about others, the entire field of astronomy seems more open to discussing unusual ideas. Of course, before any hypotheses become accepted, they must be tested again and again against the evidence that nature itself reveals. Still, the many strange proposals published about what dark matter might be attest to the new openness that Schmidt described. I'll end this section with a couple of quotes that seem relevant to this particular box. One is from Albert Einstein, at least it's attributed to him, and it reads, The measure of intelligence is the ability to change. The second is attributed to Isaac Asimov, and it reads, Your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while, or the light won't come in. This is section 27.3, Quasars as Probes of Evolution in the Universe. By the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. One, trace the rise and fall of quasars over cosmic time. Two, describe some of the ways in which galaxies and black holes influence each other's growth. Three, describe some ways the first black holes may have formed. And four, explain why some black holes are not producing quasar emission, but rather are quiescent. 
The quasar's brilliance and large distance make them ideal probes for the far reaches of the universe and its remote past. Recall that when first introducing quasars, we mentioned that they generally tend to be far away. When we see extremely distant objects, we're seeing them as they were long ago. Radiation from a quasar 8 billion light years away is telling us what the quasar and its environment were like 8 billion years ago, much closer to the time that the galaxy that surrounds it first formed. Astronomers have now detected light emitted from quasars that were already formed only a few hundred million years after the universe began its expansion 13.8 billion years ago. Thus, they give us a remarkable opportunity to learn about the time when large structures were first assembling in the cosmos. The evolution of quasars. Quasars provide compelling evidence that we live in an evolving universe, one that changes with time. They tell us that astronomers living billions of years ago would have seen a universe that is very different from the universe today. Counts of the number of quasars at different redshifts, and thus at different times in the evolution of the universe, show us how dramatic these changes are. We now know that the number of quasars was greatest at the time when the universe was only 20% of its present age. The drop-off in the numbers of quasars as time gets nearer to the present day is quite abrupt. Observations also show that the emission from the accretion disks around the most massive black holes peaks early and then fades. The most powerful quasars are seen only at early times. In order to explain this result, we must make use of our model of the energy source of quasars, namely that quasars are black holes with enough fuel to make a brilliant accretion disk right around them. The fact that there were more quasars long ago than there are today, that is, the fact that we see quasars far away and not nearby, could be explained if there was more material available to be accreted by black holes early in the history of the universe. You might say that the quasars were more active when their black holes had fuel for their energy-producing engines. If that fuel was mostly consumed in the first few billion years after the universe began its expansion, then later in its life, a hungry black hole would have very little left with which to light up the galaxy's central regions. In other words, if matter in the accretion disk is continually being depleted by falling into the black hole or being blown out from the galaxy in the form of jets, then a quasar can continue to radiate only as long as new gas is available to replenish the accretion disk. In fact, there was more gas around to be accreted early in the history of the universe. Back then, most gas had not yet collapsed to form stars, so there was more fuel available for both feeding of black holes and the forming of new stars. Much of that fuel was subsequently consumed in the formation of stars during the first few billion years after the universe began its expansion. Later in life, a galaxy would have little left to feed a hungry black hole or to form new stars. Both star formation and black hole growth peaked together when the universe was about 2 billion years old. That is, over 10 billion years ago. Ever since, both have been in sharp decline we are late to the party of the galaxies and have missed some of the early excitement. Observations of nearer galaxies seen later in time indicate that there is another source of fuel for the central black holes, the collision of galaxies. If two galaxies of similar mass collide and merge, or if a smaller galaxy is pulled into a larger one, then gas and dust from one may come close enough to the black hole in the other to be devoured by it and so provide the necessary fuel. 
astronomers have found that collisions were also much more common early in the history of the universe than they are today. There were more galaxies in those early times because over time, as we'll see, small galaxies tend to combine into larger ones. Codependence of black holes and galaxies. Once black hole masses began to be measured reliably in the late 1990s, they posed an enigma. It looked as though the mass of the central black hole depended on the mass of the galaxy. The black holes and galaxies always seemed to be just one two hundredth the mass of the galaxy they live in. Somehow, black hole mass and the mass of the surrounding bulge of stars are connected. But why does this correlation exist? Unfortunately, astronomers don't yet know the answer to this question. However, we do know that the black hole can influence the rate of star formation in the galaxy, and the properties of the surrounding galaxy can influence how fast the black hole grows. Let's see how these work. How a galaxy can influence a black hole in its center. Let's look first at how the surrounding galaxy might influence the growth and size of the black hole. Without large quantities of fresh food, the surroundings of black holes glow only weakly as bits of local material spiral inward toward the black hole. So somehow, large amounts of gas have to find their way to the black hole from the galaxy in order to feed the quasar and make it grow and give off energy to be noticed. Where does this food for a black hole come from originally, and how might it be replenished? The jury is still out on this one, but the options are pretty clear. One obvious source of fuel for the black hole is matter from the, ghost, <laughs> the host galaxy itself. Galaxies start out with large amounts of interstellar gas and dust, and at least some of this interstellar matter is gradually converted into stars as the galaxy evolves. On the other hand, as stars go through their lives and die, they lose mass all the time into the space between them, thereby returning some of the gas and dust into the interstellar medium. We expect to find more gas and dust in the central regions early in a galaxy's life than later on, when much of it has been converted into stars. Any of the interstellar matter that ventures too close to the black hole may be accreted by it. This means that we would expect that the number and luminosity of quasars powered in this way would decline with time, and as we have seen, this is just what we find. Today, both elliptical galaxies and the nuclear bulges of spiral galaxies have very little raw material left to serve as a source of fuel for the black hole. And most of the giant black holes in nearby galaxies, including the one in our own Milky Way, are now dark and relatively quiet, mere shadows of their former selves. That too fits with our observations. We should note that even if you have a quiescent, supermassive black hole, a star in the area could occasionally get close to it, and then the powerful tidal forces of the black hole can pull the whole star apart into a stream of gas. This stream quickly forms an accretion disk that gives off energy in the normal way and makes the black hole region into a temporary quasar. However, the material will fall into the black hole after only a few weeks or months, and the black hole then goes back to its lurking quiescent state until another victim wanders by. This sort of cannibal event happens only once every 100,000 years or so in a typical galaxy, but we can monitor millions of galaxies at once in the sky, so a few of these tidal disruption events are found each year. However, these individual events, dramatic as they are, are too rare to account for the huge masses of the central black holes. 
Another source of fuel for the black hole is the collision of its host galaxy with another galaxy. Some of the brightest galaxies turn out when a detailed picture is taken to be pairs of colliding galaxies. And most of them have quasars inside of them, not easily visible to us because they're buried by enormous amounts of gas and dust. If two galaxies collide and merge, then gas and dust, but not so much the stars, can get pushed out of their regular orbits. Some may veer close enough to the black hole in one galaxy or close enough to the black hole in the other galaxy to be devoured by it and so provide the necessary fuel to power the quasar. As we saw, galaxy collisions and mergers happened most frequently when the universe was young and probably helped to account for the fact that quasars were most common when the universe was only about 20% of its current age. Collisions in today's universe are less frequent, but they do happen. Once a galaxy reaches the size of the Milky Way, most of the galaxies it merges with will be much smaller galaxies, dwarf galaxies, and these don't disrupt the big galaxy very much, but they can supply some additional gas to the black hole. By the way, if two galaxies, each of which contains a black hole, collide, then the two black holes may merge and form an even larger black hole. In this process, they'll emit a burst of gravitational waves. And one of the main goals of the European Space Agency's planned Laser Interferometer Space Antenna mission is to detect the gravitational wave signals from the merging of supermassive black holes. There is a link to Learning Box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, watch two galaxies collide to form a supermassive black hole. How does a black hole influence the formation of stars in the galaxy? We've seen that the material in galaxies can influence the growth of the black hole. The black hole, in turn, can also influence the galaxy in which it resides. It can do so in three ways. One, through its jets. Two, through winds of particles that manage to stream away from the accretion disk. And three, through radiation from the accretion disk. As they stream away from the black hole, all three can either promote star formation by compressing the surrounding gas and dust, or instead suppress star formation by heating the surrounding gas and shredding molecular clouds, thereby inhibiting or preventing star formation. The outflowing energy can even be enough to halt the accretion of new material and starve the poor black hole of fuel. Astronomers are still trying to evaluate the relative importance of these effects in determining the overall evolution of galactic, bul galactic bulges and the rates of star formation. In summary, we have seen how galaxies and supermassive black holes can influence the evolution of each other. The galaxy supplies fuel to the black hole, and the quasar can either support or suppress star formation. The balance of these processes probably helps account for the correlation between black hole and bulge masses. But there are, as of yet, no theories that explain quantitatively and in detail why correlations between black holes and bulge masses is as tight as it is, or why the black hole mass is always about one two hundredth times the mass of the bulge. That is curious. The birth of black holes and galaxies. While the connection between quasars and galaxies is increasingly clear, the biggest puzzle of all, namely how the supermassive black holes and galaxies got started, remains unsolved. Observations show that they existed when the universe was very young, 
One dramatic example is the discovery of a quasar that was already shining when the universe was only 700 million years old. <laughs> it was just a little baby. What does it take to create a large black hole so quickly? A related problem is that in order to eventually build black holes containing more than 2 billion solar masses, it's necessary to have giant seed black holes with masses of at least 2,000 times the mass of the sun, and they must somehow have been created shortly after the expansion of the universe began. Astronomers are now working actively to develop models for how these seed black holes may have formed. Theories suggest that black holes formed from collapsing clouds of dark matter and gas. Some of the gas formed stars, but perhaps some of the gas settled toward the center, where it became so concentrated that it formed a black hole. If this happens, the black hole could form right away, although this requires that the gas should not be rotating very much initially. A more likely scenario is that the gas will have some angular momentum that will prevent a direct collapse into a black hole. In that case, the very first generations of stars will form, and some of them, according to calculations, will have masses hundreds of times that of the sun. When these stars finish burning hydrogen just a few million years later, the supernovae they end up with will create black holes a hundred or so times the mass of the sun. These can then merge with others or accrete the rich gas supply available at these early times. The challenge is growing these smaller black holes quickly enough to make the much larger black holes we see a few hundred million years later. It turns out to be difficult because there are limits on how fast they can accrete matter. If the rate of accretion becomes too high, then the energy streaming outward from the black hole's accretion disk will become so strong as to blow away the infalling matter. What if, instead, a collapsing cloud doesn't form a black hole directly or break up to form a group of regular stars, but stays together and makes one fairly massive star embedded within a dense cluster of thousands of lower mass stars in large quantities of dense gas? The massive star will have a short lifetime and will soon collapse to become a black hole. It can then begin to attract the dense gas around it, but calculations show that the gravitational attraction of the many nearby stars will cause the black hole to zigzag randomly within the cluster and will prevent the formation of the accretion disk. If there is no accretion disk, then matter can fall freely into the black hole from all directions. Calculations suggest that under these conditions, a black hole even as small as 10 times the mass of the sun could grow to more than 10 billion times the mass of the sun by the time the universe is a billion years old. Scientists are exploring other ideas for how to form seeds of supermassive black holes, and this remains a very active field of research. Whatever mechanism caused the rapid formation of these supermassive black holes, they do give us a way to observe the youthful in <laughs> the youthful universe when it was only about 5% as old as it is now. <laughs> there is a link to Learning Box that finishes this section, and I encourage you to visit the link. <laughs> it reads, take a look at some new results from the Chandra X-ray Observatory about the formation of supermassive black holes in the early universe. This was a fairly short chapter, and we've reached the summary. 27.1. Quasars. The first quasars discovered looked like stars but had strong radio emission. Their visible light spectra at first seemed confusing, but then astronomers realized that they had much larger redshifts than stars do. The quasar spectra obtained so far show redshifts red ranging from 15% to more than 96% speed of light. 
Observations with the Hubble Space Telescope show that quasars lie at the centers of galaxies and that both spirals and ellipticals can harbor quasars. The redshifts of the underlying galaxies match the redshifts of the quasars embedded in their centers, thereby proving that quasars obey the Hubble law and are at great distances implied by their redshifts. To be noticeable at such great distances, quasars must have 10 to 100 times the luminosity of the brighter normal galaxies. Their variations show that this tremendous energy output is generated in a small volume, in some cases in a region not much larger than our, old, our own solar system. A number of galaxies closer to us also show strong activity at their centers, activity now known to be caused by the same mechanism as quasars. 27.2. Supermassive black holes. What quasars really are. Both active galactic nuclei and quasars derive their energy from material falling toward and forming a hot accretion disk around a massive black hole. This model can account for a large amount of energy emitted and for the fact that the energy is produced in a relatively small volume of space. It can also explain why jets coming from these objects are seen in two directions. These directions are perpendicular to the accretion disk. 27.3. Quasars as probes of evolution in the universe. Quasars and galaxies affect one another. The galaxy supplies fuel to the black hole, and the quasar heats and disrupts the, glass, the gas clouds in the galaxy. The balance between these two processes probably helps explain why the black hole seems always to be about one two hundredth the mass of the spherical bulge of stars that surrounds the black hole. Quasars were much more common billions of years ago than they are now, and astronomers speculate that they mark an early stage in the formation of galaxies. Quasars were more likely to be active when the universe was young and fuel for their accretion disk was more available. Quasar activity can be re-triggered by a collision between two galaxies, which provides a new source of fuel to feed the black hole. We've reached the end of the reading for chapter 27, but we're not done talking about galaxies. We're going to talk about them a little bit more in chapter 28, and I'll look forward to talking to you then.